over the last few weeks, we've been going through a series called Rhythms of Grace. And I actually read something interesting this week, uh, which was in America, they decided to do a survey with 5,000 Christians. And they asked these Christians the definition of grace. And the top answers were forgiveness, salvation, God's love, a free gift, But what was interesting was that only 1.9% described grace as the empowerment of God. You see, grace is actually the power of God. And we see this when the Lord says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect. My grace is made perfect in weakness. And so when it comes to this series titled Rhythms of Grace, we're actually talking about how we as followers of Jesus can walk in the rhythm and the flow of the power of God. And the way in which we do this is by implementing spiritual disciplines or practices into our lives. Now, these practices are not meant to be something that we just do and put on a checklist to feel like a better Christian, but they're actually conduits. I want to say that again. These practices are conduits for the grace to flow into our lives. These spiritual disciplines are like the channel, the pipeline that opens up our mind and our body to experience the presence and the power of God. And so today I'm going to be sharing on the spiritual practice of simplicity. I wonder what comes to mind when you hear the word simplicity. Does that word make you think of a simple and easy life? Does it make you think of an uncomplicated and stress-free job or a relationship that is straightforward with no strings attached? Maybe for some of you, it makes you think of cleaning out your closet and organising your home or going on a holiday to a relaxing place with no kids. To be honest, if I think of the word simplicity, I think of the very opposite to my life right now. In fact, this morning when daylight savings stopped, my son decided to wake up at 5.30 a.m. demanding breakfast. So Jack and I were scrambling to get him breakfast and then he decides to throw it all over the floor. And so I said to Jack, I'm so sorry, I've just got to get ready for church, you deal with this. And so I went to the laundry to get the top that I was going to wear today. But of course, it was still on the line, wet. Um, But instead of choosing a new top, I decided to wear the wet top. So my clothes are literally drying on my body as we speak. So when I think of a life of simplicity, um, it seems to be opposite to what I'm experiencing. And maybe today you find yourself in the same place where life is a little bit complicated Maybe you're a little bit overwhelmed or maybe you're just trying to survive the chaos and the mess of the day-to-day living. The Oxford Dictionary defines simplicity as the state of being simple, uncomplicated or uncompounded. Another dictionary defines it as the freedom from complexity or the condition of being easy. But you see, when it comes to Christianity, biblical simplicity isn't so much a state or a condition. It's not one particular circumstance. It's a lifestyle. It's a way of life. John Mark Comer, a well-known pastor in America, described simplicity as limiting the number of our possessions, expenses, activities and social obligations to a level where we are free to live joyfully in the kingdom with Jesus. John Becker, a Christian author and writer, describes it as the intentional promotion of things we value most and the removal of anything that distracts us from them. 
Jen Johnson from Bethel Church describes simplicity, and this is probably my favourite description, as intentionally arranging our life around God. And yet I wonder today if that is how we are living our life. For many Christians these days, it seems to be the exact opposite. Instead of intentionally arranging their life around God, they're arranging God around their life. Many of us are far too busy and distracted, trying to work everything out in our own strength, taking control of our life and circumstances instead of giving them to God. We're carrying burdens that we were never designed to carry. We're burying our wounds, denying our pain, carrying the weight that only Jesus can bear. We're striving, we're working, we're competing, we're chasing our version of success. For some of us, we're trying to find our significance, our security, our affirmation, our value in places and people and titles. Can I tell you, it doesn't matter if you're an EL2 or an EL1 or a Band 4 or an APS6, you're all valued by God. But yet there is something in us that keeps striving and keeps pushing for that ultimate job, that ultimate family, that ultimate reality to the, sorry, that ultimate ministry to the point where we're running on empty, coming home at the end of the day, absolutely exhausted and depleted. And God says, I never designed you to live this way. If you think about it, we do this to ourselves. We're the ones that overwork. God's not asking us to do that. We're the ones that overbook ourselves. We're the ones that overthink. And if you're anything like me, we're the ones that can overcomplicate any given situation. There it is. That is me. Jumping to conclusions. Jack says, why are you jumping to conclusions? And this is me. We overcomplicate so many situations. That is actually me through and through. But in all seriousness, we do this to ourselves. We put these expectations and unnecessary pressure on ourselves. We wonder why we are anxious and stressed, overwhelmed, living distracted, filling our lives with all of these things, all of these activities inside of church, outside of church, and we're just left feeling exhausted. Matthew 11, verse 28 to 30, Jesus is speaking to His people, you and I, and He says, are you tired, worn out? Burned out on religion, come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a rest. Walk with me and work with me. Notice how Jesus isn't saying sit down and take a break because simplicity isn't a moment, it is a lifestyle. Watch how I do it, he says. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. I want you to take note of that. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. One of Jesus' first sermons was shared from a mountainside, which is, of course, we know it as the Sermon on the Mount. In this sermon, he shares a variety of teachings from prayer to generosity, including the famous Beatitudes. And throughout all of these subjects, Jesus is drawing a distinction between life in the kingdom of God and life lived in the kingdom of the world. He's showing the people that a new reality is available to them. No longer do they have to do it on their own. No longer do they have to try and navigate life in their own strength, but rather they can enter the kingdom of God and have every need met without begging or striving. You see, before the redemption of Christ, particularly for the Jewish people, their life was full of striving and working, trying to survive by their own resource and talent. 
Sin had separated humanity from the pro abundant provision of God and cursed them with painful labour, working by the sweat of their brow. And not only that, they had to live and come under the law of Moses, which it was impossible for anybody to attain. And when Jesus came to this earth, he spoke to them and he offered them a new reality, the kingdom of God. And in this reality, Jesus reconciled humanity to the Father. Through his death and resurrection, he restored us to the fullness of what it means to be a child, a son or daughter of God, where all our rights and privileges are restored and every need met in abundance. This is why right in the middle of his sermon, Jesus says, but seek first His kingdom, my kingdom and my righteousness and all of these things will be given to you as well. Another translation says, seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously. And He, being our heavenly Father, will give you everything you need. This was revolutionary to the hearers of the day. They were being told that the God that they had worshipped for years and years was offering to provide everything that they needed and not just spiritual but tangible physical needs if they would just seek first God's kingdom. And this truth still stands today. If we seek God first, if we seek Him in every area of our life, all that we need will be provided for. Let me put it another way. If, if we give God all the issues and complexities of our life, we will find that He will sort each one out according to His purpose. But what do we do? Is that of seeking God, we seek everything else. We have no time for Him because we're overloaded by our busy schedules, which might I add, we complain about all the time, or maybe that's just me. And with the best of intentions, we say we're trying to spend time with God. We're trying to find time to spend with Jesus. But if there's one thing I've learnt, we cannot try and fit God into our schedule. We actually have to fit our schedule into God's plan and His life. Sometimes I wonder if the reason we're overloading our schedules and distracting ourselves with every activity under the sun, getting lost in numerous Netflix episodes, scrolling on social media for hours, or excessively buying more. In fact, postmodern philosopher Jean Baudrillard argued that atheism isn't replacing Christianity, shopping is, consumerism. But I wonder if the reason we're filling our days with all of these things, desperately trying to entertain and distract ourselves is because deep down we're discontent. We're not truly happy with our lives. We're not satisfied in the here and now. You know, maybe for some of us, and Jackson and I have been prone to this in the past, have the never arriving syndrome, where we look over there and we say, oh, if we just get there, if we just buy that house, if we just get into a relationship, if we just find the perfect place to live, then we'll be content. And we get there and realise we're not content. So we look over there and we say, oh, when maybe the kids finally move out of home or we retire or we get that car, then it will be better and we get there and we're still not content. And so we're looking for something else to buy, something else to do, other places to be. It's the never arriving syndrome. Or maybe 
You're constantly comparing your life with others, looking at what you don't have and wanting what they have. And so you keep adding more and more and more, another product, another promotion, another activity, another diet, another outfit, another degree. You see, if we can't first be content in Jesus, abiding in Him, we will forever be adding to our lives. And although what we add, all of these things that we add aren't bad in and of themselves, we can never get from them what we can get from God. Because it is only Jesus Christ that can give you strength beyond your own ability. Healing for your body and soul. Forgiveness for every sin, past, present and future. Never again coming under guilt and shame. Power to overcome whatever you may face in this world. It is only Christ that can give you wisdom that sets you apart. Hope when all else seems lost. The security that He will never leave you nor forsake you. Joy that is far deeper than earthly happiness. It is only Christ that can give you purpose for your life, comfort and courage when all hell is breaking loose, a divine calling and destiny, freedom and liberty, unconditional love that will drive out your fear, guidance to keep your path straight, daily provision, protection from attack, spiritual gifts that go beyond human talent. And it is only Christ that can give you perfect peace and true contentment in every season, regardless of the circumstance. When the Apostle Paul was in prison because of corrupt officials waiting a possible execution over false charges, he wrote a thank you note to the church in Philippi. And he said this, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. Then he goes on to say, I am not saying this because I am need, for I am, I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength." Something that really stands out to me about this passage is that Paul said he learned to be content. Contentment doesn't come naturally, especially if you are in a season of need and want. Contentment isn't an instantaneous transformation the the moment we decide to follow Jesus. No, it is a process. It's something that we have to actively cultivate, something that we learn by walking with God every day of our lives. When Paul, uh, Paul then shares not only that he's content, but that he has learnt the secret of his contentment. And this secret is buried right in the middle of this letter. Paul wanted to express his heartfelt thanks for their financial gift, but at the same time, he didn't want to give the impression that the Lord wasn't sufficient for all of his needs. You see, for Paul... The secret to his contentment was understanding that everything, major or minor, was under God's control, is under God's sovereignty, that no matter what circumstance he found himself in, whether in plenty or want, he knew that God was in control. In fact, many theologians believe that Paul had a policy of not making his financial needs known to anyone except the Lord. He wrote numerous letters to various churches and not once did he ask for financial support. In fact, the only thing he asked for is prayer, for boldness and faithfulness in his witness. Why? 
because he trusted in the sovereignty of God. He trusted that God would provide. Now, I'm not saying not to ask for financial contributions or to raise money, but in this particular situation, it demonstrated Paul's trust in the fact that God was in control. And fast forward 2,000 years, God is still in control. He is still on the throne and he is still sovereign. And yet, it can be so easy for us to try and stay in control, controlling certain situations, clutching onto them so tightly to make sure they are just the way we want them to be, holding on to our job, holding on to our spouse and family so tightly, clutching onto our, our finances or our life plan to the point where we're trying to play the role of God and trying to control all of these areas. And then we're left exhausted because the reality is we are not God and we are not in control. Sometimes we just need to let it go. Three words for someone today. Let it go. Psalm 46 verse 10 says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Majority of this psalm is actually written in third person, but when it gets to this verse, it shifts to first person as God himself, the Lord himself says, be still and know that I am God. This word still in the Hebrew is translated rafa. It means, and I want you to hear this this morning, it means to let go, to relax, sink down, cease striving. In other words, God is saying, let go of the control. Let go of the anger. Let go of the unforgiveness. Let go of trying to fight and strive your way through and just understand and know and trust that I am in control. Let it go. A while back, I heard a story that had a really profound impact on me. It was about a Christian man who had a friend that was an atheist. And this Christian man's wife became quite sick. And as the months progressed, she became more and more ill. And this man every day prayed for her healing. Months went by and his wife ended up passing away and going to heaven. Now, a few days later, the husband, the Christian man was in his home praying and the atheist friend walked in and found him praying and said, what are you doing? Why are you praying? Your wife died. God didn't heal her. What are you gaining from prayer? And he turned around to the man and he said, it's not so much about what I'm gaining. It's about what I'm losing. In prayer, I'm losing my anger. In prayer, I'm losing my frustration. In prayer, I'm losing my resentment, my need to control. You see, when it comes to our Christian walk, it's not so much about what we're gaining. Often it's about what we're losing. Sometimes the best way that God can add to your life is to subtract from it. Sometimes the best way that God can add to your life is to subtract from it. Through the power of His Spirit, He enables us not only to let go of bitterness and disappointment and all of these negative things that can have an impact on our life, but He also enables us to let go of the good things. Because how many of us know that some of the good things aren't always right for us at the time? And this is by far the hardest of them all. It is the most painful. It is contrary to our flesh. But sometimes the only way that God can set us free from something, the only way He can make room for something else is to take it away. But I tell you what, 
if we cooperate with the Spirit of God, if we align ourselves to His will and loosen our grip and control, I am telling you that we will end up receiving even more back. Think about it. If you refuse to loosen your grip and you have such a tight hold, you can't receive the blessing of God. You're shutting it out. In fact, let me illustrate this for you. You've probably been wondering what this glass of coins is for. So this coin represents God's finance that He has given to you to steward. Here it is. Now, if you hold on to it so tightly, you control this finance, you you don't release it, you hold on to it, never letting it go, you can't receive any more finance. It's very hard for God's blessing, especially financial blessing, to come through. But if you were to let go, if you were to actually release this finance and open up your hand, loosen your grip, you can suddenly receive more and more and more to the point where maybe you're overflowing and God's blessings all over the floor. But you see, if we loosen our grip, we can receive God's blessing. In the same way that a sower releases the seed, he lets go of the seed, he receives back a harvest. He reaps a harvest. If the band could please join me. At the beginning of 2020, my husband, we were living in Melbourne, my husband came home and said, Beck, I've been offered a job in Jordan. It's a great opportunity, but we would need to leave in three months. He said, what do you think? I said, what do you mean, what do I think? I'm a part of a ministry, I can't just get up and leave. Who will take over? 12 weeks, that's not enough time. And I started going a little bit crazy, became a little bit frazzled. And bless my husband's response, he disregarded anything I said about ministry and said, Beck, you will absolutely love it. The place we would be staying in has a bath. And I said, I'm not moving to Jordan for a bath. Anyway, moving to Jordan wasn't in God's plan for us. But that night, the Holy Spirit spoke to me and He said, this is not the last time that Jackson is going to you about moving. You need to loosen your grip on ministry. To be honest, I think ministry had become my identity. And so over the coming months, I asked the Holy Spirit, help me loosen my grip on ministry. And the Holy Spirit brought me to a place where my identity wasn't found in what I do. My identity was in found in who He is in Christ. And so the day came in October 2020, my husband came to me and said, I believe that God's calling us to Canberra. He wants us to move. Admittedly, I wasn't on board straight away. But then when I prayed and I heard God say, I'm calling the both of you to this city, I literally walked through the doors of church and I handed in my resignation with absolutely no fear. I didn't know what was next. I couldn't see any ministry ahead. All I knew was that God wanted me to loosen my grip and let go and give it to Him. Can I tell you only a couple of days later, Pastor Sean called me and offered me a position on staff at this beautiful church. And I can't believe the blessing that I've received because of it. I literally gave God ministry. I said, here you go, I let it go. And He gave it back to me better than I could have ever imagined. Jackson and I always say this, but we love this church. We love serving Pastor Sean and Linda. We feel so blessed. Our family are blessed by this community. But I truly believe that I would never have experienced this blessing unless I had first decided to let go. And I'm not sure what circumstance you find yourself in today, 
But maybe it's time to let go. Maybe it's time to release that situation that you've been holding onto so tightly. Maybe it's time to subtract some things from your life that have been crowding your relationship with God. Maybe there are things in your life that have been taking your attention, luring your affection and your heart away from Jesus, away from the one that loved you before the foundations of the world, away from the one that literally came to this earth, gave up every privilege of deity, took on human form, went to a cross to let go of His life so you could find yours. In 2 Corinthians 11 verse 3, Paul writes to the church, And he says, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray, lured away from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. The word simplicity used in this verse and all throughout the New Testament is the Greek word hapalotes. It means undivided, singleness of heart, singleness of affection. If you're going to hear one thing today, then please hear this. When it comes to our life with Jesus, the opposite of simplicity is not complexity. It is superficiality. It is a life that is trivial and vain. The choice isn't between a simple life and a complex life. It is a deep life or a shallow life, focused or distracted. When God invites us into the spiritual practice of simplicity, He's not asking us to cut everything out of our life and get rid of all our possessions, although rearranging our priorities certainly helps. All He is asking us to do is seek Him, not as another task on our to-do list, but in everything we do, seek Him. Trust that He is in control with a singleness of heart and a singleness of affection. Can I ask you to stand, please? Hebrews 12, 2 encourages us to fix our eyes on the author and the perfecter of our faith. In ancient Greek, to fix your eyes, to look unto Jesus implied, it was a verb that implied to look away from everything else. You literally cannot look at the Son of God if you are looking and striving and chasing for all of these other things. Jesus says, seek my kingdom first, abide in me, commune with my spirit in everything you do and I'll sort all of those other things out. And I believe that God wants to say to some of you today, that burden that you are carrying right now, I want to carry that for you. I want you to live light and free. The decision you're about to make that is causing you anxiety, I will replace that anxiety with peace for I am in control. The sickness that your family member is experiencing, it is not on you to make them better. I wanna take that weight off your shoulders and show you my healing. The shame that you live with because of your past, my son has already removed that. You are my child and you are righteous in my eyes. The failure that you see yourself as is a complete lie. I want you to know the purpose to which I am calling you to. The opportunities that are ahead of you, you don't need to open those doors, I will. Give them to me. The discontentment that you feel because of how your life has turned out. Lay it all down at my feet. 
every bit of emotion, every worry, every concern. So I want you to know that there is more to your life than you realise. My blessing for your present and your future is far greater than you could ever, ever imagine.